All right, so Philippians chapter 4, and in our passage today, what we have, as we're going to look at verses 10 through 13, we have what is for many their favorite Bible verse, their favorite verse in the whole Bible. This is what we're going to see in verse 13 especially. This is one of those verses that people put on coffee cups and coffee mugs and bumper stickers. This is one of those verses, and so I'm sure that there's at least a few in here uh, who this verse is your favorite, and for good reason. It is an incredible passage uh, that we are going to get into today. Uh, but before we jump right into it, I, I just want to lay before you, remind you of the context of which this was written in, because if, if we don't have the context, uh, we, we, can, we can make words mean anything without the context that they are in. And so uh, where we have the author is it's the Apostle Paul, and he is writing from prison in Rome. He is a prisoner of the state, and he has been put into prison uh, because he is under false accusation. He's under false accusation of stirring up riots, of, of starting trouble. He was falsely accused by the Jews who did not like the message that he was preaching. I don't know if you've noticed, but sometimes when people don't like what you're saying, they say things about you that aren't true. I don't know if that's ever happened to you before, but if it has, uh, the Apostle Paul fits into that category. And so he's writing from prison in Rome. He has been in prison for about four years. Four years of his life he spent in prison. He's now in Rome and he's waiting to go on trial to appeal before the emperor and to make his case for why he is innocent. Now, prior to being arrested, Paul was a traveling missionary. He traveled from, from town to town, from city to city, preaching about Christ, preaching about the resurrection, preaching about the hope that we have through his life and his death and his burial and his conquering of, of death and sin and the grave. And as he went from town to town, one of the towns that he went to and one of the churches that he started was in the city of Philippi, the city of Philippi. Now, he had had a very close relationship with these believers, this, this body of believers in Philippi, this church. They had been very close to him. For a season, they had supported his ministry financially, but as time had gone on, over the years, they had lost contact with each other. It's probably been 10 or so years since Paul planted this church to when he is now writing this letter. And over that course of time, as Paul had been in prison in Jerusalem, in prison in Caesarea, in prison now in Rome, shipwrecked for three months on the island of Malta, travel, you know, being, being shipped from place to place as a prisoner, he had lost touch with the church in Philippi. But when they heard that he was imprisoned in Rome, they sent one of their own members with an offering. They raised an offering in the church, and they sent one of their own members to deliver this uh, uh, offering and to check on Paul and see how he was doing and to, to bring back a report. And that member of the church was a man named Epaphroditus. Now, when Epaphroditus got to Rome and found Paul and gave him the offering and saw how he was doing... He got sick, deathly ill. He, he, he nearly died after he had this prolonged illness for a season of time. And then after, after it looked like he was going to die, God touched his body, miraculously healed him, and raised him up. And so now Paul is sending Epaphroditus back to the Philippians, and he's including this letter 
with him. And it's a letter of thanksgiving and, and giving them an update on how things have been going. And as we've seen through the course of the letter, through the course of the first uh, four, uh, three and a half chapters that we've looked at together, Paul has encouraged them, Paul has strengthened them, Paul has instructed them, and now as we're getting to the end of the letter, he once again turns to giving thanksgiving because of their care for him and their support for him. So that's a little bit of the context that's surrounding uh, the verses that we're looking at today. So Philippians chapter 4 and verse 10. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that you would use it today to teach us, to instruct us. Lord, we want to hear from you today. We believe that you have spoken uh, to us in many ways. Lord, creation pours forth a word from you. Lord, the, the, the heavens declare your glory. Lord, you've sent prophets who have spoken your word. You've sent your son, who, who is the word made flesh and lived and died and rose again to teach us about you. You've given us your word in the pages of scripture in the Bible, Lord, that we might know you and, and know of, of your plan and your purpose in the world and in our lives. Lord, that we could be restored back to you, though we've all sinned and fallen away because of sin. Your word tells us the, the beautiful story of you sending your son to, to, to redeem our lives, to pay the price for our sin. And Lord, as we look at your word today, Lord, all of us from so many different places and stages in life, Lord, some of us abounding and some of us at a low point in our life, your word is written for us today. And I pray that you, your purpose, your desire for each one of us would be accomplished, would be furthered through our time in worship and in the word, and as we take your supper together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So at first he starts by saying in, in verse 10, he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. And he's speaking about how they sent Epaphroditus to be with him, that, that their concern for him had been revived, that at, at some point along the way, that they had lost track of him, their relationship had uh, uh, gone dormant, they didn't know where he was. It wasn't like today where you could just send off a text or an email or whatever people are doing today, I don't know. But anyway, where you could be in contact with one another so quickly and, and so closely, it wasn't that way 
in Paul's day. In fact, it was very difficult to communicate. Nevertheless, they had learned that he was in prison. They had learned that he was in Rome. And so they sent Epaphroditus with this offering and to check on him because they loved him, because they cared about him. Because if it weren't for Paul preaching the gospel to them in Philippi, they would still be lost. They would still be dead in their trespasses and sins. But because of his ministry, because of his sacrifice, because he paid a price personally to go and take the gospel to these believers, to these people that he did not know, to these people that were lost, they now have life in Christ. That They now have a relationship with God that has been restored through the work of Christ. And so they love Paul. They care about him. And when they found out that he was in prison, they sent this offering to him. And it says that when, he, when, when this happened, he, he rejoiced. It brought joy to his heart. It was a, a huge encouragement to him. He was encouraged by this unexpected visitor that came. And, and when he encouraged him, it brought joy into his life. And I would encourage all of us that we too, we too can be used, can be used by God to strengthen, to encourage, to bring joy into other people's lives. This unexpected encouragement. Paul was not expecting this, this gift. He was not expecting this visitor. But when this person came, it showed their love for him and it, it resulted in joy. And so I just, right at the, at the outset, I just want to ask you, who can you encourage this week? Who can you strengthen this week? Who can you unexpectedly pick up the phone and call and say, I was just thinking about you, and I wanted to call and encourage you. I wanted to call and, and, and love on you. I wanted to call and bless you today. When we do that, it produces joy in people's lives. Who can you encourage this week? You know, sometimes we think that, that people don't need encouragement. Sometimes we think that people have it all together and that their lives are perfect. And we believe the lies that they put on social media about how wonderful their lives are. And, and, and so what, what do they need encouragement for? Let me encourage you to be an encourager I mean, they could have thought the same thing about Paul. I mean, Paul's the apostle. Paul's the, the, the one that is the one who, who, who planted the church. Of course, he's the man of God. He, he doesn't need any encouragement, does he? Surely he's encouraged. Listen, everybody needs encouragement. Everybody needs encouragement. You know, the Bible says this, that he who has friends must show himself friendly. He who has friends must show himself friendly. If you find that you are someone who needs a friend, guess what that means that you need to do? You need to befriend somebody. If you're someone who needs love, guess what you need to do? You need to pour out love. If you're someone who needs encouragement, guess what you need to do? You need to go and encourage some other people. This is the way that this Works And so as Paul has received this encouragement, he's been filled with joy. Guess what he sits down and he begins to do? He begins to pour it back on the people that poured into him. And he writes this incredible letter of encouragement that not only has encouraged the Philippians, 
but has even brought life and encouragement to our church over the last several months as we have worked through it as well. This is something every Christian needs to learn to do, I believe, is to encourage one another. So right now, think about a name. I want you to think about a name. I want you to think about a face. I want you to think about a person. Who can you encourage this week? And let's go out and do it. Amen? Amen. Now, as he moves on from talking about this joy that he received from this unexpected visitor, in verse 11, he turns to talking about the the need that they met. And he begins to talk about being in need and being in want, but also being fully supplied and and having no needs. And as he walks through this, he, he, he begins to make an argument and I believe what he talks about in these next few verses is is something that every Christian needs to learn. That every Christian needs to learn. Twice Paul says in this passage, I have learned. In verse 11, he says, I have learned. Again, in verse 12, he says, I have learned. And so I believe what Paul learned, we need to learn as well. So we're going to look at that. But then also in the middle of this, uh, these two learns, he says, I know. And so we have this like knowing sandwich that's sandwiched between learning. And I believe that every believer, every Christian needs to learn what Paul learned and know what Paul knew. We need to learn these lessons and we need to know these things. So what are they? Let's, let's walk through them together. He says, I have, verse 11, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned. What has he learned? In whatever situation I am to be content. Paul says, I have learned to be content. Now, Contentment is not considered a virtue in our culture. I don't know if you realize that. We, we don't laud people for being content. Oh, aren't they just the most content people? It, it's not really a, a virtue. It's not really something that's laid before people as something to pursue in our culture. Of course, we know our culture is broken and deeply flawed, But in fact, our culture is so broken that the total opposite is commonly accepted as the virtue. The opposite of contentment is covetousness. Covetousness, wanting what somebody else has. That's the virtue in our culture. I don't know if you notice that. Sometimes we don't realize the culture that we're in because it's like the air we breathe. It's like fish, it's like water to a fish. We're just in it all the time. But covetousness has taken root in our culture, wanting what somebody else has. Covetousness is such a, a, a sick sin. It's such a soul-destroying sin that is listed in God's top 10 list of sins. It's number 10. It barely made the list. Nevertheless, it's on the list. Thou shalt not covet. Covetousness will destroy your soul. Covetousness is not just wanting something. It's it's wanting what they have. 
It's, 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 I don't want to work for it. I just don't want them to have it, and I want it to be mine. We live in a culture that has so embraced this philosophy, so embraced this vice as a virtue, that in many places today, we don't even arrest thieves for breaking in and stealing what doesn't belong to them. Stealing is the, the absolute manifestation of covetousness. We're so broken, we're so flawed, we're so blinded by our own sin that our culture, is, it's become systemic in our culture, covetousness. Nevertheless, thou shalt not covet tells us that it is evil, it's even sinful to entertain the thought of wanting to have what somebody else has. Think for a moment how prevalent this is in our culture. We, uh, a, couple, a couple weeks ago, I, I don't, uh, a couple weeks ago, a very wealthy man in the United States decide, decided to buy another company. I don't know if you heard about this. And it was, it, the company he decided to buy, it was, you know, it's, it's quite expensive of, a, of an item, of a purchase, a little bit more than I have uh, access to. Uh, $44 billion he decides to spend on this company. And, and one of the reactions that came out immediately was, no one should be allowed to have that much money. And in fact, the government should take that person's money and give it to us. And that was paraded in the culture as a, as a that's, that seemed like a good idea to a lot of people. You know what the Bible calls that? Covetousness. And Christians are not called to covetousness, we are called to contentment. Contentment. Paul says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Now, what this means is that contentment is not something we are born with. We are not born content. We must learn to be content. If you are going to, to, to have contentment in your life, it will be because you have learned it. Paul says, I, I learned this. I, I didn't have this in my life at some point, but I have been taught this by the Lord. I have learned this lesson. I have learned how to be content. He goes on to say, well, we'll, we'll We'll come back to this in verse 13. But in verse 12, he says, so in verse 11, I have learned to be content. In verse 12, he says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. What I find interesting is that Paul says, 
I've learned to be content, and I now know how to handle the highs and the lows of life. He says, I know how to abound, and I know now how to be brought low. Listen, life is full of valleys and mountain peaks. Life is full of highs and lows. Life is full of good times and bad times. We, we will not escape in this life, in this broken world, we will not escape hard times in life. No matter how much you try to protect yourself, insulate yourself from heartbreak and tragedy, listen, we live in a fallen and a broken world, a world that is marred by sin, and in this life, all of us will experience hard times. Jesus told us this. This shouldn't be a secret to any of us. Although when we go through hard times, we're always shocked. We're always surprised. We're always like, why is this happening? This is the world we live in. A broken world. Broken because of sin. Jesus himself taught that storms come into everyone's life. If you have your Bibles, flip over. We're coming back to Philippians, but flip over with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew's the first book of the New Testament. Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7 is in, in towards the end of what's called the Sermon on the Mount. This sermon that Jesus preached, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, many believe are, are some of the most inspired words ever committed to paper. Jesus in his sermon, he says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house, who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell and great was the fall of it. Now, Jesus here identifies two types of people. Both of them hear his word. Both of them receive his gospel. Both of them have access to the word of God. One group of people obeys the word, and the other group of people does not obey the word. One group of people hears his words and does them, and another hears his words and does not do them. These are the two groups of people. But notice, please notice, that to both groups of people, the same storms enter their life. The same storms enter their 
life, being a follower of Christ, does not mean that you will never go through hardship. It doesn't mean that you will never go through pain or difficulty or even tragedy. No, the storms of life come into every life. To the believer and the unbeliever. To the righteous and the unrighteous. I know there's a strain of pseudo-Christianity that says if you follow Jesus, nothing bad will ever happen to you. I don't know what book they're reading, but I can tell you it's not the Bible. We all go through storms in life. However, what I also want to draw out for you is the, the outcome for these two groups is totally different. We all go through storms, but those who obey Christ, who follow his word, they are building their life to sustain the storms. They are building their lives on a solid foundation so that the winds of the storms of life, when they come into our life, they will not destroy the house that we have built. They will not destroy our life. But those who are building their life on something other than Christ and his word, Jesus says they're building their life on shifting sand. That when the storms come, their life collapses Paul is saying, back to Philippians, Paul is saying that he knows how to experience highs and lows. He knows that highs and lows are a part of life. Most people today do not know how to handle the highs and lows of life, especially the lows of life, because most people have not built their life on the sure and solid foundation of Christ and his word. And so when the lows come into people's lives, when the storms come into people's lives whose lives have not been founded on the rock, people turn to all sorts of things, all sorts of escapes to try and drown out the pain that is in their soul. Don't we see that? Don't we see that every day? Don't we see people today turning to alcohol, to drugs, some even prescription drugs? Isn't there an opioid pandemic, not pandemic, epidemic in our land today? People trying to dull the, play, the pain of the lows of life. Paul says, I have learned to be content, therefore I know now how to walk through the low points in life, how to walk through the valleys of life, how to go through the storms of life. People today turning to escape online, video games, pornography, gambling, striking up a relationship with your high school girlfriend. Yeah, that's going to solve all your problems. Secret affairs, adulterous relationships. People don't know how to handle the lows of life. The valleys, the dark times, the hard times. Christian believer, we're going to go through the hard times. But if you founded your life on the rock, if you founded your life on Christ and his word, your life will stand when you go through the storms 
of life. And he moves on to now say, I know how to be brought high, brought low, I know how to abound. In every circumstance I have learned. Now the second learn. He learned to be content. He knows how to be brought low. And he's learned the secret to doing this. The secret to facing plenty. The secret to hunger. The secret to abounding. And the secret to being in need. What is that secret? What is that secret that Paul knows that the world doesn't know? That they turn to all of these other sources of, of, of soul medicine, which actually only increase and multiply the problem? What is the secret? Verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The secret to contentment in every circumstance is living in the power of Christ. Not in our own strength, not in our own self-sufficiency, not in our own gifts, not in our own talents, not looking to ourselves, but looking unto him, the author and the perfecter of our faith, looking unto him who is our victorious king, Looking unto him who on the third day walked out of the grave. Looking unto him who has defeated every foe, every enemy. Looking unto him who is not dead in the grave, but has ascended to the right hand of the Father. Who rules and reigns today. King of kings and Lord of lords. Looking unto him, living in his Spirit in His power, in the power of the Holy Spirit that is in our lives as believers in Him. Paul says, I can do all things, not through me, not through my own strength, not through my own talents and abilities, not through gritting my teeth and bearing it. No, Paul says, I can do all things through Christ. You see, it's only through Christ that we can endure the lows of life. It's only through Christ that we can make it through the hard times, the difficult times, the impossible times. If you try to make it through on your own, you're building your life on shifting sand. But if you will cling to Christ and his word, there is no valley that he cannot reach down and rescue you from. Look unto Christ. Look unto the one who left heaven, who left glory, who humbled himself. Why? To save us, to rescue us, to redeem us. Died on the cross. The most wretched and horrible of deaths had our sin laid upon him. Endured the wrath of God, which we deserved. Rose again on the third day. Do you think he did all of that to abandon you now? Do you think he went through all of that so that when you would go through a hard time, he, he couldn't reach down and, and fill you with his life and fill you with his power? Paul is in prison 
He's been locked away for four years. But Paul says, I know how to be content. I know how to endure. I know how to press on because it is Christ who gives me strength. And let me just submit to you, you will not find the strength of Christ in any other place but in his word and in his church and in his people and in his spirit. You will not find the strength of Christ by binge-watching whatever. You will not find the strength of Christ by turning to the bottle or turning to pills. You will not find the strength of Christ in anything but in Christ. And so in the hard times, in the difficult times, when your heart is broken and you are hurting, get to Christ. Get to church. Get in the presence of God. Call the people of God. I need prayer. I need encouragement. I need strength. And guess what? How does God send strength into our lives? Well, one way he did it to the Apostle Paul is he sent Epaphroditus to go and encourage him. Sometimes we're too prideful. Sometimes we're too self-sufficient. We think we have it all together, or at least we want other people to think that. And so God will even send people into our lives. How are you doing, Can We pray for you. No, I'm good. Everything's good. Everything's rosy. Can you imagine Paul doing that to Epaphroditus? He shows up in Rome with the, this offering and this encouragement, and he says, no, I'm good. I'm all right. Things are, things are fine. Really? You know, you're locked, to, you're locked in in chains and you've been in prison for four years. No, I'm, I'm good. No, Paul says, it encouraged me. It strengthened me. It lifted my spirit. It lifted my soul. One of the ways that God gives us strength is through the body of Christ. So when you are hurting, look to Christ. When you are hurting, come to church. Ask for prayer. We have prayer teams every Sunday. We have people up here who their ministry is just to, to be a blessing to you, to pray with you, to encourage you. Take advantage. There's no shame in coming up here for prayer. Did you know that? I don't know if you knew that. This isn't the walk of shame. This is actually the walk of blessing. This is the pathway to blessing in your life. He says, I can do all things. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. My dad taught me this, and I think his mom taught it to him, that because we can do all things through Christ, the word can't should not be in the Christian vocabulary. If Christ will give you strength, you can do it. You can do all things through Christ. In our own strength and power, we can endure very little. But through Christ, we can endure all things. We can do all things through the power that he gives us. Now, I have to, I have to point this out for you. How did Paul learn this? He says, I learned these things. I learned to be content I learned the secret 
to facing hardship. I, he, I learned this secret. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. How did he learn this? Did he learn this through abounding? Is that how Paul learned these things? Or did he learn it through being brought low? Did Paul learn this secret in the good times? Or did he learn these things in the bad times? Did he learn it on the mountaintop? Or did he learn it in the valley? It was in the valley. It was in the valley. I don't know if you know this, but in a mountain range, in the valleys, the valley is one of the most fertile places on planet Earth. The valley is where fruit grows. The the valley is where God bears good fruit in our lives. The valley is the fertile soil of the Christian life. Paul learned the secret, not on the mountain, but in the valley. If you're going through a valley today, know that God is going to produce good fruit in your life. Know that God is teaching you some things that are, more, that are worth more than whatever pain must be, uh, must, you must go through as you go through the valley. The, the, great, the great psalm, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Yea, though I walk. Through what? The valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil. Because you are with me. Listen, God's with you in the valley. He promised to never leave you or forsake you. Sometimes we hold on to him by faith. I've been there. Hold on to Christ by faith. Trusting in his word. Trusting that he is with me in the valley. He says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You know, the shepherd used his rod and his staff to to defend against wolves that would attack the flock. But he also used the rod and the staff to bring correction to the sheep, to bring discipline to the sheep, to lead the sheep in the right path. Sometimes he would just gently knock them upside the head. (laughs) The Lord is our shepherd. And his rod and his staff, even though it hurts sometimes, it is a comfort to us because it tells us, my shepherd is here. My shepherd is leading me. And if, he's le- if, if I'm feeling the rod and the staff of his correction and his direction, I can also be assured that he is going to use that rod and that staff for my protection to defend my life against the foes that would try to destroy it. No weapon formed against you will prosper. Amen. He learned the secret through hardship, through hunger, through need. He learned that he could do all things through Christ by going through the storm. There's this horrible, horrible, horrible idea in Christianity that is not biblical, that is not scriptural, 
But it goes like this. God won't give you more than you can handle. It's not biblical and it's not true. That, that, that idea is taken from a Bible verse that is talking about temptation. And so it is true that God will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability to overcome it. That's good news. So every time I'm tempted, the Bible says God provides a way of escape. He will not allow temptation to come into my life that I am too weak to overcome. Praise be to God. But that doesn't mean that God won't give us things in our life that are so hard and so difficult that we can't handle them on our own. Hello? In fact, it seems the way that God works is he gives us more than we can handle so that we look to him, so that we trust in him, so that we rely on his strength and his power and his spirit instead of ourselves. This is how God works. So don't believe the lie that God won't give you more than you can handle and so you just got to suck it up and endure. No, look to Christ. And look to him to give you the strength. And he will give you the strength to do all things. I've heard it also said this way that religion is a crutch for the weak. For the weak-minded, for the feeble in soul. Religion is not for strong people. Religion is a crutch for the weak. Let me just say this. A crutch is a great blessing to the man with a broken leg. And listen, I've got way more than a broken leg. I've got a broken soul. Humanity has broken souls. Humanity is broken because of sin. It's foolish for the man with the broken leg to refuse the crutch that can lead him to health. To call Christ a crutch is to understate my need and dependence upon him. Christ isn't my crutch. He's much more than my crutch. Christ is my sustainer. Christ is my provider. Christ is my savior. Christ is my redeemer. Christ is my friend. Christ is my life. Religion is not a crutch for the weak. Religion is life from the dead. We need Christ. We need Christ. Refusing Christ is like the man with the broken leg who's making fun of the guy using the crutch. I don't need a crutch. He's walking around, his leg's falling off. I'll just, he's drunk because he's using alcohol to dull the pain. That's the world we live in. Look to Christ. Look to Christ to heal your soul. Every other medicine is no medicine at all. Karl Marx famously wrote that religion is the opiate of the masses. Well, it turns out that if you take away religion, the masses turn to opiates. The soul is broken because of sin. We've all sinned against God. We've all broken God's law. There's only one medicine for the sickness of sin in our soul, 
It's the cross of Christ. It's his sustaining life. It's his power in us. If we look to anything or anyone else to try and heal our souls, we'll only find ourselves more hurting, more broken, more alienated from God. Turn to Christ. Turn to Christ. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I want to close today by reading from Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. Starting in verse 28, the end of the chapter, Isaiah 40, verse 28. Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even the young men shall faint and be weary. And the young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord. That means to hope in the Lord. To trust in the Lord. Those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. And they shall walk and not faint. Look to the Lord today. Look to Christ today. If you find yourself in the valley today, don't turn to some other pseudo-savior to dull the pain, to be a distraction. It's only Christ who can bring healing to your soul. It's only through faith and trust in his work on the cross. He is the one that gives us strength. He is the one who gives power to the faint. He is the one who increases our might. He is the one who helps us to endure every trial, every hardship, every pain, and every tragedy. It is only Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are the one who gives us strength. Lord, help us to be people who learn contentment in you, satisfaction in you. Help us not to put our eyes on other things that we want and desire, but instead to put our eyes on you the only Savior of our soul. Lord, anything and everything else will not satisfy the longings of our soul, will not give us strength, but it is you. Lord, you are more than enough. Lord, you said to cast all of our cares upon you because you care for us. Lord, you take our cares upon you. Lord, you carried our burden of sin on the cross. Lord, even as we come to the table now, 
we do so in faith. And as we do, we are proclaiming that we are not looking to anyone or anything else to satisfy our soul or to save us from our sin. And as we take of the bread and the juice today, we are declaring that you are our savior and in you our souls are satisfied. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.